What is innovation really? And can we create it simply, especially in critical situations? Welcome to Reinventors. With me, Anissa Goshi and Thomas Lantala by The Crisis Compass, where we hear from entrepreneurs, activists, business leaders, and inspiring minds from all walks of life about reinvention in challenging times. Whether you're leading large teams, small organizations, or are struggling with dilemma decisions, personally and professionally, this podcast is for you. Welcome to our latest episode of Reinventors um, with me, Anissa and Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Anissa. And we're both from the Crisis Compass. We're excited to bring you yet another episode. And today we're really thrilled to have London-based multidisciplinary artist Adebayo Bologi with us. Hi, Ade. Thanks for joining. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, very excited to have this conversation with you. And I would like to start, actually, by quoting something that um, you've said. And in fact, this is on your Instagram. Um, there was never a plan B. So I'd like to start with that in mind. And I'd like to explore together what have been those points of reinvention for you in your life, um, both professionally and personally. And what does okay. reinvention mean for you? Cool. I think my answer is going to tie in to one, into one another because... It's actually good that you asked me about reinvention because I think I really like the word, but my personal philosophy is not necessarily that one is actually reinventing because I think when we think of the word reinventing, we think about, okay, you invent something, right? You create something so it feels conclusive. So you're looking at it like an object and it's done. So to reinvent, to reform it, to put it into something else. So almost like that was A and now this is B. And I think that's a really good starting point for people to see a word like reinvention. And I think what it does, it offers a sense of kind of hope and encouragement because if someone's had like a crappy past, so to speak, then they can feel like, oh, I can leave that behind and I can have a new beginning. So that's the one part of reinvention that I think I connect with, okay? Um, but then thinking about it, where I am in my life right now, and I'll explain about this phrase, there was never a plan B, is that when I finally came into what I feel is my true self, if I can say that, and really growing in the understanding of who I am, what I do realize is that the past, as cliche as it might sound, was completely necessary. So it's not kind of like these two complete stages rather than a continual line of someone becoming. You see what I mean? So it's a completely different flow. You know, there's that phrase, I think it was um, Steve Jobs. I think he said like, you can only, you can connect the dots when you look backwards, right? So I think it's that same thing about when an individual has the light bulb moment and you begin to say, ah, I realize why X, Y, and Z happened in my life. What may seem like a painful experience right now or painful experience back then, you begin to have a bit of peace with it and reconciliation with it. And you can, rather than trying to shut the door to it and hate yourself or punish yourself or even others, you can see it as just this continual story of yourself becoming. Does that make sense? So hence, when I think about reinvention and the phrase, there was never a plan B, I'm saying to myself, look, even if my past looked like I was on the wrong track, I wasn't on the wrong track because we all like, things to be so logical that we can put it in a box and we can control life and say, I'm in control. But you and I both know that 
if everyone, if logic always made sense, then we could all just go to this instruction book and we could understand life like that. And that's it. We're all done. No pain, no suffering, no problems, et cetera, et cetera. You guys don't have to do what you do helping companies. Everyone's just happy. But life isn't like that, right? So there was never a plan B. That phrase is speaking to I've made peace with my past. I actually accept it. I, I'm so thankful for who I am. And I realized that. I'm trying to say to other people that be awake, be present, accept your, do not look at your pain or what you're going through right now. Like, oh, this is the end, you know, et cetera. I love that analogy because it's, it's very similar to how we perceive actually the whole topic of crisis. For us, it's, it's more or less a, let's say, well, it's a turning point. It's, it's a turning point along the story because for us, it's, it's more an extreme change since we're all, always developing. We're always moving forward or we're always moving on a path. It doesn't always have to be forward, but we're mm. moving in a path somewhere and sometimes there are turns. And this is a little bit right. we, that we put into, into crisis. Um, when you look back now, is, are these turns becoming clearer now than when they were when you were actually in them? Or were you already oh. were you always aware when that happened? Definitely. And um, I think there's a key word here. It's confidence and bravery, right? You know, someone can say something to you and you can understand it intellectually and you go, yeah, I get it. But your heart doesn't want to accept it because we don't like pain or we think we're going to be in pain. So we're trying to avoid pain because why do I mention that? You said something really cool, um, Thomas. You said it doesn't necessarily have to be going forward that there are turns, right? But if you have a background like mine, which is so varied in terms of having a performance, legal sales, like I remember working in a sales environment and in a sales environment, you come in every day and you have targets. So you have a target oriented mind. In other words, if you haven't hit that target, somehow mm, you messed up today. Whereas a creative mind knows that actually you're just sowing a seed today and that's what was needed to be done today. And the results may be next week or wherever, right? So if I accept that truth, I can have peace. Like now I, I am learning as an individual that it's all about this thing about control. I didn't know there was something gonna happen, but we all want to know because if the more that we can control our lives, the more we think we are safe. And what's happened now, we're in a pandemic where the, our humanity has been brought back to reality, <laughs> right? And like, regardless of your financial status, regardless of your culture, whatever, we are all reminded that there's one thing that we cannot escape and that's death. I don't mean to sound morbid, but that's just a bit about this idea of control. And I think a powerful individual, someone who actually has peace and in control recognizes that they don't have control. And so you live in the moment and when I say live in the moment, I don't mean a kind of hippie, reckless, child-like, careless, insensitive living in the moment. I mean, kind of, this is what I can deal with right now. This is how much I know right now. That's okay. Makes total sense, I think, because it's, it's also about, it's really about these, where do we look for control when everything else around breaks? And there's, it's basically just our scope of influence that we have, but we, we way too often focusing on things that we can't influence. And that just takes yeah. energy, it, it misleads. Yeah. And what we often yeah. see with individuals, and we see it with 
with companies, um, it's it's the same way. And what I really what, what struck me about what you just said was this this goal orientation, these targets that you had when you were when you were working in sales. And we also realized that today's still it's widespread that the better way of moving forward is actually having concrete goals because you can then measure your success. But mm -hmm. if you turn it around and uh, I'd be curious to hear what you think about that theory. If you turn it around and say like, well, uh, instead of looking at a goal, look at the progress you've made and don't set yourself a goal, set yourself, well, I want to work on this, but let's see how far I get. And then you look back on the progress yeah. other than, because I always feel like when you have goals, it's setting up for failure. Um, right. Okay. Achieve them, right. I don't know. What do you think? I agree. And I don't agree. I explain why. So I think sometimes what we're dealing with is language. And I think language can create a kind of connotation and a feeling that creates a, a kind of attitude. So sometimes you use the word goal, but I would use it in relation to another word, vision. And I think vision is more spiritual, it's more dynamic, and it's less, um, what's the word? It's less kind of like aggressive because what vision does, it makes your life focused. And I don't think having a focus is a bad thing because when you don't know where you're going, you don't know what to do. When you don't know where you're going, you don't know who you are. Because you guys have a vision, your vision as a company is to help people out to, in, in crisis to do this. Now, because you have that vision, that dictates the movement of your company. It dictates the kind of people you're gonna have on your platform. If you didn't have that vision, I wouldn't be speaking to you right now but it helps you decide what kind of voices do we want? Well, these are the voices that go in line with what we're about. Now, that in the same way is kind of like having a goal in terms of like direction. So I feel I was doing a, a talk the other day of a group of artists and I said, something that we all forget is that we are looking at the wrong element. You cut an apple off, but another one will grow. Whereas you have to go to the root. The thing that's providing the actual fruits is the source. So the vision is the source. Vision is the thing that propels you forward. Vision is the thing that when you wake up in the morning, you know why you're awake. You know what you're doing. It gives you strength when you have a problem. When I, if someone comes to offer me something, a deal, a promotion or anything, I go, does it go in line with my vision? It helps, it simplifies my life. The vision makes me a balanced human being because within myself, I know who I am by virtue of the vision. So that allows me to be even more free, to be open to listen to anything, because whatever I'm going to listen to or be open to will go, does it go in line with the vision? When you don't know who you are, you're afraid of opinions because you're like, no, you might throw me off. But I'm not afraid of opinion because I know who I am. And that opinion is either going to empower, enlighten me or guide me in relation to my vision. But in the context of target-oriented goals, what they do is they can potentially you can think that that target-oriented goal exists in a vacuum. So you see it like uh, technical data, which I think with our social media and technology world, as positive as analyzing data can be, what it can do is it can shut off all the other human nuances, right? So with a target-oriented environment, one might think we failed today we didn't make the targets today simply because of this full stop. Whereas actually when you add all the other elements of humanity, it could be that, no, you failed today because it's actually Christmas and people are spending time with their family. I think it's really about looking at things more nuanced. 
Uh, it's not sure. not just get stuck on a certain technical aspect, but actually look around the context, understand the context, understand what's That's happening. That's right. Human dynamics, whether it's it's things outside your scope of influence that still will influence whatever you want to achieve or not. And I, I really like this notion of the vision. And what you were saying there, Ada, also on a on a different on a flip side is that vision keeps you true to yourself or helps you to keep true to yourself. Yeah, and you're right because. Like some people will say to me, how are you able to keep making work? Or how are you able to come up with new ideas? And I say, every day I'm having a conversation with my vision. Like, what are we doing today? The vision is something that's very clear in your head that you're working towards. And because of that clarity, creativity becomes more open. And the vision gives you the why. You may even end up doing something that looks crazy, but you know why you're doing it. Because of something bigger Like, why are you going to live in Spain right now? That seems completely weird. Oh my gosh, look how he did that. Like, how do you connect all your work together? Because you know why. And just to add, that that doesn't mean that the vision cannot grow. It can grow. It can even change. But I think the essence is something is always leading you. You are a visual artist. You know, you prepare a visual work. I'd like to also touch upon some of those twists and turns in your life that have brought you to this point of you being an artist. And when mm -hmm. did things go not as expected? And what did you do? And what did you learn that you can share with others? But also the past year during the pandemic, how did you have to change and adapt? And what did you have to do? What did you learn to continue to be able to make work and to sell work as well? Luckily, from a practical point of view, I have a studio I work in, so I, I can work on my own. Before I was completely devoted to the visual arts, I was an actor and working in a community environment where I was always around lots of people. I still do that now, but from the other side as a director. So my working environments are basically on my own. First of all, from that point of view, I was lucky in a sense that a lot of people had that cut off immediately. And they were like, oh, wow, like, how do I deal with this, you know? Secondly, a lot of people had to then maybe stay with their partners or their husbands, their boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever, and be with them 24-7, which was a new change for them. And then they didn't know how to handle that. Well, I'm lucky in the sense that uh, my wife, who I get to do my behind-the-scenes photography, she is with me all the time anyway. So that, again, that wasn't a new change for me or for us. So I am very lucky by virtue of my job and uh, the practical side of it that nothing really changed. What did change was that I had real major exhibitions like shows in New York, LA, um, Berlin, that one I was lucky to go to, but other places in the world that because things were physically canceled, they all had to go online. That was the real hit, you know, because I thrive off the fact that my work can be shared and of course shared in a way that it's tactile in the sense of people being there in that space. Um, so that was that was kind of hard. And luckily work was still selling. I think work was still selling because people also, what was the other option? Well, let's all look at our phones, right? Let's all go online. And prior to that, I made sure that I had a presence online for me. We're very lucky as a visual artist to have platforms like Instagram because, you know, before I'm a, I'm a kid growing up, I'm a 90s kid, grew up in the 90s where like, you know, you can make something and you're only showing it to the, the people who are geographically, you know, of close proximity to you. Whereas now I can make something and someone in Hong Kong in 10 minutes can see it 
and either want to give me a show or want to buy my work or do a magazine interview because of this platform. So for me, that was just like a heart and a ha-ha moment, a light bulb moment where when my work started to thrive and I started to share my work, I latched onto that platform and used and abused it for my, because it's like all the time an artist has had someone in between kind of telling them what to do, dictating how to express themselves, you know, and there was always this door mystery thinking like, oh, how do we connect with the rest of the world? And what the internet has done has destroyed that myth. And regardless of whether you come from a rich or poor background or whatever cultural background, it's leveled the playing field where an individual can feel inspired and go, I have a talent, I have a gift. And here's a platform for free that's saying, express yourself. To answer your question, yes, shows were canceled, but then we were able still to show them online. And because I already have a presence online where I communicate every single day through that platform, um, I think people found also comfort in that because they're like, well, here's a guy giving me content every day to engage with. I'll engage. And I think that comes back to something we said earlier on about you sow something one day, you see the benefits of it later. So for someone like me, who's been putting a lot of attention on that platform, I felt like I was reaping the benefits now because now the whole world is going, well, we're all going to go online. And I'm going, hey, I live here. Yeah. I read the other day um, a quote that said, uh, there is no such thing as sudden success. It's, it's because it's what's usually not seen is the hard work that leads up to it. Yeah, yeah. And that's pretty, you're just... Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. People were saying when I remember my artwork was showing and they were like, you know, even people as close as my partner has said, like, oh, you know, it feels like something just happened overnight. And I had to re remind her and a few of my friends as well and say, let me actually just say that. I think I live with this thing every single day. Mm -hmm. I wake up, spend an hour or two hours of personal planning and prayer, meditation and walk it all that stuff that no one can praise you for, no one will ever see. And you're constantly dedicated to it because again, the vision, you see something in your head and bit by bit, it, it's growing. And then even I turn back and I'm like, wow, look at this wall I've built. It didn't start off like that, but it's because you're driven. You're not necessarily like building and look, you're just kind of in the moment making it. And no one's paying attention because of course, at first, who cares about two, three, four bricks? you're laying down, you can't, You don't even see it, you might even walk across it. But when they've built the wall, they're like, whoa, how did this get here? Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I've been, I've been here for ages. Yeah. So Ade, before we wrap up this really um, interesting and thought-provoking conversation, tell us a few of those, you know, um, hard, hard turning points and how did you overcome? Sure, so there were some, from a personal point of view, and I'll try and be brief because it's not, it is a kind of long story, but I'll be as brief mm -hmm. as I can. So I started off as a child actor, you know, doing shows in the West End, Edinburgh Festival, stuff like that from the age of 14, um, National Youth Music Theatre and just performance-based lifestyle. And when I got to 18, 19 and had to go to university, my father, a typical West African man, was like, Gwen, be serious. And, you know, <laughs> and... <laughs> And we just came to heads and even my mom played the sort of beautiful manipulative soft side of like, well, you know, I don't care what happens to you, just me. You know, like pretending like she's on my side and not my father's, but I'm like, no, you're on his side. You just want me to go and throw away my creative life and 
but I ended up studying law and I hated it, man. They were like, I hated it, but like we were saying before, Thomas, like when I look back, I actually wish I could turn back the time and have embraced it because it gave me powerful tools of language, of context, objectivity, thought composition, all of these tools it gives you, but you don't realize it in the moment. And, um, but when I was there, I was just like a zombie, literally. And I say this every single time that I cannot remember one person's name from three and a half years at university. And I'm an out, I would say I'm an outgoing person. Like I'm a people person. I can't remember one person's name because I was dead. I mean, that's great. That's, that's really bad. I that I was depressed without knowing. I was a functional person. I was functioning as someone in, who's depressed because um, I didn't want to be there. Um, but I got through it. And I remember it was like things like legal philosophy and stuff that really caught my eye. And while I was studying, I found like escaping films. I was obsessed. I'd have had a large film collection and would throw myself in that or go and visit museums. And then after that, um, Anissa, I ended up working in a city, but then I fell ill. And I had a job in Canary Wharf doing contracts for a security company. And I was walking on the streets and my feet became really hot, really tired and I didn't know what was wrong. I tried to eat. I couldn't taste the food. Wow. And uh, the flat, I flat I was in with my brother at the time. It was Corona. <laughs> the the flat I was in came. with my brother. Yeah, before it came. I did it, guys. I was gonna say, <laughs> better you than me. <laughs> but um, I went, I better you I mean, me. a black man but and I, Albanian, I, anything can happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But when I was at home, I remember I couldn't come off the bed. Like I was just flat out sick. Um, rashes on my skin. I'd open my hands. They looked like fish scales. Just weird stuff was happening. My mum came over. Everyone tried to get me up. I couldn't, couldn't even open my eyes. If I opened my eyes, it was like, um, if you imagine that a migraine intensified by seven or something. I just, I had to have my eyes closed all the time. I couldn't even sleep. It was too much. And I, they took me to a hospital and... Um, they checked my blood and everything. And they said, your son's not sick. And they came and said, are you stressed? And I just, when she, when they said I'm not sick, for some reason I felt okay. Cause before I could only walk five steps. Then after taking five steps, I would be like, I couldn't breathe. Mm. It was so weird. But the minute a doctor, someone that I think my mind saw as someone I could trust said, no, you're, we've checked everything. You're fine. For some reason, like something happened in my mind and I was okay. And that told me how, when you're stressed and the psychology of stress, what that can do to your body. Like that's so powerful. Um, the fact that my mind understood an authoritative figure said something. So I must be thinking something else that's mm. affected my body in this way. Um, but anyway, I digress. So I, I was jobless now, I didn't have a job. So I had some money, but no job. And my mom said, look, I don't care what you do. I just want my son to be happy. And I, there was a local bookshop that sold philosophy and theology. And I was there for two years. And they were the most comforting two years of my life with these two elderly women who became like my best friends. Um, I, had, I wouldn't hang out with anyone. I literally, I had no friends in the sense of hanging out. I'm just on my own in these kind of two years. But 
at the end of the two years or in the middle of like after a year and a half, I sat outside the bookshop and I was like, what do I want to do with my life? No one's telling me what to do anymore. I can do what I want. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take a time out to fast and to have a spiritual kind of sabbatical seven days and find out what's going on with me, what I want to do. And I remember on the fourth day, um, my cousin played a, a video of me when I was doing a play at school and I could hear myself singing on the stage and I was like, oh yeah, I used to perform, like I used to act. And then I had this feeling inside me that was like, that's what you should do. Um, long story short, I did get into a drama school. I found a place that was perfect for me, Central School of Speech and Drama, best year of my life. Cause I only went to do an MA, not like mm. three years I just mm. needed my muscles to be reminded of how I used to perform and then from there I, I ended up working in theatre mainly theatre and some film professionally for eight to ten years but even while all of this was going on to mention these turning points you're asking me about I would have these headaches literal headaches they were really bad and they were kind of indicators to me of like whether I should go out or, or not or just I'd have these headaches sometimes that I probably wouldn't go out for a drink with a friend or I have these headaches that I'll stay in bed longer, whatever. They were just there. And it got to a point that the headaches were so intense that they were interrupting how I was going for auditions, they were interrupting how I was going for things, almost like saying, stop acting, stop doing this. Um, and I was getting good roles, but I just felt unfulfilled. I felt something was still missing. And... Um, I would always carry notebooks and write and draw like all the time, but I would never show anyone. I would do these squiggly things and I was just drawing. And it got to a point where they were so bad. I mean, so, so bad that I remember the hotel I was staying at uh, when I was on tour, I just ended up crying and I went on my knees and I was like, God, who am, what's going on with my life? Like, who am I? Why is this happening? And, um, because the reason why I asked that is because the headaches were so bad and I was getting so restless after coming off stage that I thought, oh, maybe I should start writing because I, I had written a play like not so long ago before that. And I thought, I think my body needs to write something. But every time I tried to write, I would end up drawing. So I'd start writing and I'll start drawing. I was like, why am I drawing? Like, mm. I don't draw, like what's this? And it was almost like it was screaming at me going, draw, draw, draw. And, after the, when I said those words, like, I need to know who I am, what's going on, I, this voice inside me just said, go and buy paint. And when I heard that, it was the most calming feeling. And I knew that when I get back to London, I'm going to go and invest in some paint. It was so clear. I cannot explain to you. It was just almost kind of like, yeah, like, I need to paint. And I got back to London. I even told Kat, my wife Kat, and she she patted me on the back. She wasn't my wife at the time, but she patted me. She was like, oh, that's so cute that you want to buy some paint. And, you know, <laughs> and um, I bought paint. And when I got back, um, it just came out of me because here's a clear word that I like to use. I There was an intent in my mind. It's not kind of like just painting for the sake of it. I think I was going with an intent of like, I'm going to find something out. And when I picked this pen up and I started to paint it just all poured out and I was living in a house chair at the time and everyone was looking going what who the hell did that like who what and then Kat even said to me am I hiding 
like who who am I who hiding myself mm-hmm. like who are yeah that was her she was and she was like oh you can just do anything can't you but in my head I was like what is <laughs> I was going what but it made sense and again I've said this in so many interviews but I have to say it because I'm not a cry I don't cry easily but I went to the shower upstairs and I was boiling my eyes out because the headache had gone this weird feeling of the restlessness had gone and it was and I was painting like someone on crack like one piece after the other it was just it all made almost kind of like you had to shut this person up from when I was a kid because I did used to paint when I was a kid shut that person up maybe because I thought I wasn't allowed to or you know that's not who you are and I just suppressed that person and I think that thing is so real and so strong that it was like it didn't care what I thought anymore it was just like we're coming out and uh I think that's why I'm so passionate about meeting other people now who feel they don't have a voice or who feel like they're lost or they're not. I'm just like, everyone's got something in them that they are born for, you know? It's a, wow, it's a powerful story. And I, I really liked what you said in the end. Everybody's got something in them. One last question. If there was one thing you could tell yourself at whichever time, would there be anything and what would it be? So I have a philosophy I'm kind of writing now called follow the line and it basically is speaking to that inner voice that impulse of yours that's very strong and you hear it but you don't follow it because it feels a bit illogical at the time or you trust your parents voice more because they're older but you can hear there's something in you it's real like you think it's not real but you just don't have the courage to follow it And that impulse to create, that's been there for years. But it wasn't saying to me, create, create. It was, what it was saying to me was be still. So for example, I remember clear time when I was around 22 years old and I was living in the flat in West South, in shout out to South Hatton Estate, I was there. (laughs) And every time I would leave my house to go to the job I was going to, I would have this weird feeling on my body saying, stop. I can't explain it, but it was so real. I'm not making it up. It was so real going pause. It just wanted me to pause, but I would just go, yeah, and shrug it off. And that pause became louder and louder into these headaches, Mm. but it was very real to me. So I would say, listen, I know when we say to people, listen more, it can feel like an abstract term and people go, "What, what do you mean? Like, do my ears do something? Do I like chant a buddhist chant or something when i have to listen no i think it means do not be afraid to deal with your thoughts and to confront your feelings truthfully about what you want and how you're feeling and the thing is that takes a lot of faith because it sometimes requires you to stop moving and we my personality was i would always like to fill out the space in time in a day to I'd have to keep moving because somehow I felt that meant that I was productive. I don't, when I think about it now, I don't know why the fidgety, like I have to move here, I have to do that. And sometimes being still can feel so boring, but I think you can know it yourself today, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes, and then you can do what else you want in the day, but just deal with yourself 15, 20 minutes in a day and go, what's going on with me? Who I am? Where am I now? 
and something might come, you just might be surprised. I think David Lynch calls it catching fish. Um, I like how he says it. He goes, you know, if you want to catch fish, you got to, you sit down and you're quiet. And people might think you're doing nothing, but when you catch that one fish, or if you catch a big one, that could change your life. When he said that, I remember I was like, that makes complete sense to me. So I, I impose a kind of stillness in my life every day now in the morning. Or if it's not in the morning, some part of the day, there's just me time. Like we deal with my head. Dealing with yourself. I think that's a, a great thing to, to yeah. end on. Deal with yourself. Um, Ade, thank you so much for being yeah. with us today. Um, you did mention Instagram, um, which I do happen to know it's at Adebayo Bolaji. But how can people get in touch with you? Depends what they want. I mean, generally, if, yeah, Instagram's a good place because they can start from there. So they've just put Adebayo Bolaji, they just put that in, then, yeah, they'll, they'll find me. Thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation and a lot of food for thought. Ooh, Thanks for thank being you with both. us.